Solve the World, Episode 8, Introducing Magical Kingdom. Perseverance of Idea as World-Building Leadership by Rachel Lopez Leadership and Direction, 234, November 11th, 2011 Magical Kingdom was open to the public during the summer of 1948. America, its jubilance fading three years after victory in Germany and Japan, needed a distraction from the Soviets. Unlike its most well-known competitor, the kingdom was not a hit when it opened. It took nearly 30 years for the magic of the kingdom grounds to grow deep into the American psyche. This was not, however, anything out of the ordinary for its creator, Mr. Daniel Babbitt. A quick gloss over his commercial history will satisfy as an introductory course to the benefits of patience, resolve, and perseverance. Daniel Babbitt was born into wealth, his father a prominent name in cements, and then later an early investor in the airline industry. Daniel's father, Cyrus, was a businessman through and through. He came home from long trips to New York or Boston only to whip little Daniel and younger brother Constantine into a pulp for a litany of eight-year-old sins. Of the Babbitt boy's mother, whose name Daniel refused to mention his whole adult life, very little is known. Speculations range from her physically assailing the boys harder than Cyrus ever did, to perhaps the more likely case that she was engaging in extramarital relations. If the latter was the case, then surely young Daniel was privy to her acts, and would most assuredly be a clue to his deeply held Catholic faith. In high school, Babbitt became fascinated with silent film comedies. He religiously visited theaters to catch all the classics, The Chaplains and Keatons and, his eternal favorite, Harold Lloyd. After securing a business degree from Pevensey University of Maryland, Daniel famously sought out a meeting with his father. As the myth goes, it took him seven weeks to book a half-hour meeting with his mogul father. The wait paid off. Cyrus encouraged his son to get into the film business. He said that films for the mass public had reached their saturation point. Everyone and their mother's mother thought they could launch the career of the next Buster Keaton or D.W. Griffith. The market, however, according to Cyrus Babin, was ready for a niche explosion. Cyrus saw a place for informational films to be distributed amongst employees at technical companies. This was a prime way to bring information to the modern man who doesn't have the capacity or determination to read. Cyrus even imagined a university entirely taught by film, a dream that took Daniel 45 years to realize. As he was prone to do, Daniel took his father's advice and contorted it to his own interests. A budding Catholic, he was raised nominal Methodist, Daniel wanted to learn more about the lives of saints. He got funding in 1924 to produce three short films telling the stories of St. Bartholomew, St. Sebastian, and St. Peter. He produced the first two right away, but decided to raise more funds to do St. Peter real justice. Once he got what he wanted, a 43-minute silent with a cast of nearly 400 filmed entirely in South Dakota, he began looking for suitors. After five months, Daniel had to file for bankruptcy for the first time in his life. It would not be his last. It took eight months before the Diocese of New Orleans picked up his offer. They held a special screening of the films for their congregation. This alone was no way to make a living, but Daniel saw a light at the end of the tunnel. He hired Everett Toomey to be the executive of sales and show performances for Babbitt Productions. Toomey, with cliché-ridden slicked-back hair, looked the part of the quintessential salesman. Daniel lent Toomey his car, and Toomey took it to the road, knocking on every Catholic door east of the Mississippi. The result was something marvelous. 
an intoxicating sense at each private viewing that the audience was a part of something personal, unique, and made especially for them. Realizing the gravitas of this emotion, Toomey wrote Babbitt that it was imperative that opening credits thanking the specific audience for attending should be attached to every roll of film. Babbitt took out a second mortgage on his house to pay for these add-ons, before he'd seen a dime from Toomey himself. The gamble paid off, and by 1925, Toomey and Babbitt were on their way to fortune. Babbitt Studios opened in winter of 26 with an agenda to make a saint film for each day of the year. The studio grew and grew as Babbitt began to see international sales push him to financial freedom. Besides investing back into his company, Daniel followed his little brother's advice, putting roughly 70% of his net worth into stocks. Nearly all of those funds would dry up in the wake of the Depression. Furthermore, the advent of sound, first on display with Warner Brothers' The Jazz Singer, was a siren song for Babbitt and company. Daniel threw his entire studio into sound conversion. His thought at the time was he didn't need to make new films, just add sound to his old ones. The result was not only a creative disaster, but a financial one as well. Churches in the 30s didn't have the wealth at hand to pay for Babbitt's films anymore, and those that chose to take the risk were duly disappointed to find that they were buying eight-year-old films repackaged as, quote, talkies. The ruse was up. By 1935, Babbitt Productions and Babbitt Studios were bust. Babbitt foreclosed and claimed bankruptcy. Perhaps fortuitously, Babbitt's father, Cyrus Babbitt, died in 36, leaving millions to his two sons. According to Daniel himself, he put almost all his inheritance back in the stock market, assuming, as he's quoted as stating, the market wouldn't dare punch me again. I was owed what was coming. Speculative Resources Incorporated, SRI, surreptitiously opened its doors to high-end clientele in 1939. Babbitt would shut down the company in late 49, after making what some speculate to be over $100 million. Various theories ruminate as to what speculative resources did. Daniel Babbitt, when asked in 1964 about the venture, said this, We offered a variety of personal products, the most common of which was personal films. Because of the intimate nature of the products, we promised discretion and privacy to the utmost to all of our clients. That is why I destroyed all documentation that I could get my hands on. Not because SRI had anything to hide, but because with my image in the public eye, we speculated that investigative journalists would uncover that which we promised our clients would never be known. The main assertion by conspiracy theorists is that Babbitt filmed indiscreet illegal films for rich executives. Others believe SRI was hired by Franklin Delano Roosevelt to contrive ways to get America to commit to war against Germany. Versions of the theory have gone so far as to indict SRI as the provocateur, or perhaps even the orchestrator of the attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941. Still others contend that SRI sought out Nazis in order to catch them in unflattering snapshots of film, thus giving the U.S. negotiating leverage against Hitler. Whatever the case, what is known is that Daniel Babbitt became immensely wealthy from this venture. Additionally, it's been speculated that Magical Kingdom was Daniel Babbitt's way to pay penance for his sins under SRI. This writer must admit the timing lines up rather dramatically, as most contend that SRI was more or less a phantom company by the end of World War II, and that Babbitt only kept it around until 49 to avoid any suspicion. Magical Kingdom, in its most infant phase, was the physical manifestation of Babbitt's saint films. It's famously built as a ring of seven peaks. Each peak is named after a saint, and has attractions based off the life and myths of that particular saint. The center of the theme park is named Saints Row. 
When it was opened in 1949, the center looked almost nothing like it does today. A quick rundown of the seven peaks and seven saints are as follows. 1. St. George The famous dragon slayer is iconographized as just that, at Magical Kingdom's first peak. When the park first opened, the Dragon Roller Coaster was the park's one and only thrill ride, featuring an animatronic 45-foot behemoth that remains intensely realistic even after 60-plus years of use. A subnote. In 2002, the ride was reopened and the dragon was moved and rearranged to jump out at the audience in a new, much more terrifying way. 2. St. Anthony The most obscure of the peaks, St. Anthony himself was known for his hermitness and his various temptations by the devil. Babbitt interpreted this as mystical solitude. Visitors were invited to lie down in what felt like a sensory deprivation chamber. After 45 seconds, however, the ceiling opens up to a series of visions. The vision of Satan himself, Babbitt decided, was too traumatizing, and was removed after only six weeks of observations. A four-foot-tall statue of Satan as half-man, half-lizard dragon still remains outside the queue line to the deprivation chamber. Neo-Satanists have taken to sneaking into the park and supposedly offering ritual sacrifices to the statue, but that lies beyond the scope of this paper. 3. St. Francis Beyond poverty, St. Francis is renowned for talking to animals. Babbitt came to the logical conclusion that this peak should feature a petting zoo. This peak was the first to receive a second attraction in the form of a talking bird show. The show itself featured trained talking parrots, unlike the fortune-telling mechanical ones the park currently offers. 4. St. Joan of Arc Upon opening, Joan's Peak was the only mount to boast two attractions. The first was a crazy car ride showcasing the highlights of Joan's life. The ride ended with a live harp player plucking away at strings as visitors are rolled through a heavenly aura of thick fog. The second ride was the first ever 4D movie. Babbitt again just reworked one of his old silent short films of Joan and added various exhilarating effects, the most controversial of which continues to be the warming seats that exacerbates Joan's death by fire in an incredibly vivid way. 5. St. Christopher Daniel Babbitt was known for heralding St. Christopher as, quote, the saint of a thousand myths, unquote. Historically, St. Christopher is known for taking a baby across a river, only to find the weight on the traveler's back gaining with every inch. As he got to the other side, St. Christopher felt the weight of the world on his back in the form of this small child. Supposedly then, upon arrival, the baby spoke up to say, Christopher, you had not just the weight of the world on your back, but the weight of sin, just as I once had. The child Jesus then disappeared. Babbitt reimagined the event as a twisty, crazy trick house. Each visitor is asked to put on special shoes as they enter the clown house. Using magnets, as visitors travel through the maze, their feet are pulled to the ground, making it increasingly difficult to walk. This writer feels that that interpretation of the myth is sheer genius. In the late 1960s, one of the last attractions Daniel Babbitt created himself was added to St. Christopher's Peak. The moving floor ride, entitled Myths Reality, takes visitors from Egypt to China to the Mayan Empire in search of myths that share symbols. St. Christopher himself is showcased as he is often depicted as having a dog head, much like the Egyptian god Anubis. 6. St. Denis 
The Mount of St. Denis has transformed the most from its inception. Babbitt envisioned a theatric, anachronistic retelling of the myth of St. Denis, in which visitors would find themselves walking down the streets of Paris, only to spot a headless priest holding his head in his hands and touting the gospel, reaching tens of people for Jesus as he made his way to a cemetery where he buries himself to be with the Lord. After Lilith Babbitt's takeover of operations, St. Denise's peak became her focus point. She saw the Eiffel Tower's presence as an excuse to build a mini-world. A present-day come-by-nighter of Magical Kingdom's sixth peak will find themselves walking through not just Paris, but Washington, D.C., Cairo, World War I's Verdun, Tokyo, and weirdly, Antarctica circa 1916. 7. St. Drogo Even Babbitt seemed intent on exploiting this saint's patronage. Despite there existing no real connection between the historical priest Drogo and coffee, the man somehow ended up as coffee's patron saint. Daniel Babbitt used this idea to make a high-end antebellum mansion. Visitors to the park were asked to pay an extra $50 to enjoy coffee, tea, and baked goods in the midst of Magical Kingdom's seventh peak. It should be stated that $50 in 1948 was much, much more than it is today. Currently, a ticket at St. Drogo's costs somewhere in the ballpark of $2,500 and two years' wait. Even though from time to time pictures and videos show up on YouTube of what it's really like to dine in, for the most part, the experience of drinking coffee in St. Drogo's is left to the poor person's imagination. This, perhaps, is a remnant of Babbitt's social class affiliation. It is widely known that in the early years, Babbitt himself would join the visitors for coffee at St. Drogo's, though it is said that Babbitt himself only drank tea and whiskey. As stated at the beginning of this essay, Magical Kingdom was not a money-making hit from day one. Actually, it was quite the opposite. Reviews from the New York Times and like-minded news and journals slammed the park for being Catholic kitsch, and, in the words of one newspaper man, quote, a stark reminder of how bizarre and out of touch with reality left-footers continue to be. Subnote. Left-footers used to be a well-used Irish slur for Catholic people. It is rumored that the park, from 1949 to 1959, netted an annual loss of more than $3 million. Despite this meager turnout, Babbitt was never in need of funds, and found himself consistently adding and improving to his beleaguered religious world. Then, as history will forever remember, John F. Kennedy visited the Magical Kingdom. Famously, President-elect Kennedy took his family to the park as a celebration for winning the presidency. Kennedy said that the campaign was long and hard, and now that the American people accepted him, and by proxy his Catholic faith, he promised his family they'd visit the park. Babbitt himself made a huge ordeal of the visitation, and today a statue commemorates the political Goliath's trip outside the gates of St. Drogo's. Attendance rose moderately during Kennedy's presidency, but it wasn't until JFK's assassination that the country really took notice of the park. To pay his own respect, or perhaps to exploit his connection to the late president, Babbitt had a special tribute created at the center of Saints Row, dedicated just a week after Kennedy's passing. As if to pay respect to the dead's faith, America came in droves to the magical kingdom. They left legions of flowers under his mural at Saints Row. In a candid interview years later, the much maligned Lilith Babbitt said, Jack Kennedy is the patron saint of Magical Kingdom. The question of who should get credit for Magical Kingdom's astronomical success in recent years must be contended here. Many point to Babbitt's wife's re-envisioning of the park from 1978 to 1994 as a bigger component to the park's success than any of Babbitt's initial vision. 
It is true that every year from 78 to 94 saw an increase of attendance. From 47 to 57, the yearly attendance rose from 250,000 to 1 million. 57 to 78 went from 1 million to 4 million. 78 to 94 went from 4 million to 11. That bodes quite well for the strength of Lilith's term. When Babbitt gave control of the park to his young wife, he was, in all reality, giving up. He married quite late in his life, and by all accounts, was overcome by Lilith's strong demeanor and her beauty. It is said that on their second date, on the second floor of St. Drogo's, Lilith asked Daniel if he would marry her. They were wed at the park six months later in a big televised extravaganza. Her aim, it is easily supposed, was to crank as much profit out of Babbitt's world as possible, and the first thing that had to go in her eyes was the Catholiciness. Lilith covered up the saint names of each peak and relentlessly rebranded the park as the Seven Peaks of the Magical Kingdom. Saints Row became a place for animal characters and fictional dragons to inhabit, not obscure saint stories. But, as anyone can see, it wasn't until the mid-90s, under Daniel Babbitt's nephew's reign, Dominic Danconia, that the park became the thing of American culture that it is today. Danconia saw what no one else could, that Americans were thirsty for authentic remembrance. He saw into America's psyche and interpreted its heart as one aching to return to its innocence. Under Danconia, Magical Kingdom returned to its saintly roots and ceaselessly continues to market itself to children and to the greater angels of our past. Therefore, in giving credit for the success of Magical Kingdom, one must first and foremost they point to Daniel Babbitt, and then thank God for Dominic Danconia's ability to fully realize what Babbitt once saw. Daniel Babbitt is my choice for this essay because his leadership was based on singularity of vision. Historical figures like Caesar and Patton are lauded for their complexity and diversity of interests. Daniel Babbitt, whenever he had real resources at his disposal, tirelessly spent his efforts on making the lives of God's saints a reality for the common man. Think about it. He could have chosen a thousand different religious names for the theme park, but he didn't. He chose Magical Kingdom, because that's how he saw the world, through the eyes of the impossible saints that he venerated. Deanconia, while undeniably a genius in his own right, to me, is the conduit of Babbitt's leadership, not a liberator or reimagineer. Take Saints Row in the now world-famous Veneration Celebration. Veneration Celebration, yes, is Danconia's implementation, and single-handedly the most profitable and well-branded annual event of our lifetime. But its roots go directly back to Babbitt's united, original vision of making saints a reality. Veneration Celebration is merely an avatar of that concept. Daniel Babbitt fell in love with one idea, and he spent his whole life preserving and manifesting that idea into reality. That's the type of leader I want to follow. A person doggedly determined to actualize the very thing they believe in. End transcript. A mammoth of a man stood mountain-like, facing Jen and Tiff and Flusher O'Malley. He was adorned in what looked like an executioner's ensemble, all black, face covered. The mountain grabbed Jen like a rag doll, held one hand over her screaming mouth, and shook her. 
Hey, stop, stop it. Fleming, stop it. Tiff punched the mammoth in the arm. He dropped Jen. Stifled by fear, Jen couldn't bear herself and collapsed underneath the weight of the moment, sobbing. She scared me, Fleming uttered. What are you, trying to tend the rabbits or something? Tiff responded. What? Fleming said. Nothing. Look, we got the girl Patriot asked for. Oh, I see. Fleming casted his glare down at the wrecked ragdoll at his feet. She don't look right to me. Don't be coy. Just let us go to Patriot. He'll size her up fine. Coy? Why are you always using strange words like that, Tiff? Because I'm smart, you dumb bunny. Now let us down. I'm, I'm not going. Let me out, Jen squeaked out. The walls shook. Jen latched onto Fleming's massive legs. We're just going down, little lady. This is an elevator. Now come on, get up. Tiff and Flusher each grabbed an arm and pulled Jen up. Tiff spit into her hand, then used her wet fingers to wipe away Jen's tears. You really are pretty, you know. I don't want to go, Jen said meekly. The turbulence stopped. Behind Fleming, the black wall lifted. A bright hallway welcomed the group, exuding a warm vibe that contradicted in tone every other alley in that underground wasteland. The ceiling of the hall was flooded with white, fluorescent lights. All along the wall, plate after plate of luscious chicken, roast beef, duck, and shrimp paraded itself on display in front of them. Welcome, welcome. Come in, wandering stranger, come in. The voice came from the far corner of the room. A man sat on a chair facing a desk of screens and computers. He spun around to face them. No one Jen had ever met had looked like that. This man was wholly unique, but unlike any face Jen had ever seen in the movies. He was the fattest and simultaneously oldest man she'd ever seen. Scratch that, not necessarily fat, just big. Where he sat, Jen couldn't spot any fat flabs or triple chins. He was just big, like a tree. An old tree. To top it off, he wore a comically tall, burgundy-colored top hat. Jen instinctively wanted to assert herself and please this man of significance. It was the sensation one gets when meeting the president, or a world-famous actor. Whether one hates or loves the known figure, being in their presence casts an undeniable shadow. Jen wiped any remaining tears and spit off her face. With poise, she walked to the man she knew to be the Patriot. Hello, I'm Jennifer Dash. Jen walked to the monstrous figure and curtsied. Jennifer Dash. And does Jennifer Dash have a middle name? It's, it's free, blurted Flusher. No, sir, just Jen. Well then, hello, Jennifer. What brings you to my temple? A series of thoughts flashed through Jen's mind. Why was she here? Boredom? Curiosity? Fear? Against her will? She decided to go with the most urgent answer. I'm hungry. Yes, yes, very good. We'll finish here in just a moment, and then you're welcome to engorge yourself. Patriot made a long, opening gesture toward the row of lavish food. Now, the old man cleared his throat. You have desires and aspirations, don't you, young lady? Jen wondered if the question was rhetorical or not, but the continued silence moved her to answer. Yes, sir? Of course you do, and this, Jen Dash, hear this. I do too. I'm a king in my own right, but I have yet some ambition to me. For three years now, I've tried to gain a certain prize. Why? That's none of your concern, just as your whimsies are none of mine. The room fell silent for some time. Tiff here will work with you. Is that okay with you? The two girls looked at each other. Jen wasn't sure about Tiff. 
She felt she had a better handle on Thomas Flusher O'Malley than she had on his artificial sister. Yes, she finally said. Good. You've heard of the Magical Kingdom, yes? Of course. Yes. Good. And then you're also, of course, familiar with the annual Veneration Celebration. Yes, sir. Yes, well, every year, attendance skyrockets the month leading up to the event. So, Magical Kingdom is inclined to hire some more workers. Okay. You and Tiff will work. You'll be taken care of. We'll make sure you have plenty to eat, a place to stay. While you work for me, you will want for nothing. Understand? I think so, Jen proclaimed, hiding an utter lack of confidence. Yes, then. I believe, Tiff, you've found the woman we've prayed for. I knew it, Tiff boasted. Please, eat. That day, Jen ate her fill of roast beef, ham, sweetbread, and mashed potatoes. Solve the World is a four-part story. You're now eight episodes into part one. You've got ten episodes left in part one. And what you just heard lays the foundation, or what I like to call the set piece, for the majority of the rest of the events that take place in part one. The setting, obviously, is a big playground, but stick with it, learn it, enjoy it, and recall that this is about the entire world, not just Magical Kingdom. So although we're going to stay here for a while, part two, part three, and part four are going to continue to expand our universe. I'm Dante Stack, this has been Solve the World, and all the music and sound effects used in this episode and every other episode of Solve the World are appropriately attributed on our show notes page at DanteStack.com. Thanks. Hello, I'm Jordan from Montevallo, Alabama, USA. I've listened to all 100 episodes of Jen's story. Jen's about to take the plunge and become a spy in the merriest place on earth. Pray with her and for her that the secret she's led to uncover will help her solve the world.